Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in September 2022. This episode is about two topics in moral philosophy or ethics, natural law theory and situation ethics. So we'll be thinking about what natural law is, how it was developed by St Thomas Aquinas and what relevance it has today. And similarly, we'll be thinking about what situation ethics is and what relevance it has. Um, Also, we'll see what else we get on to as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Michael Platt, who teaches at Harvey Grammar School in Folkestone. Hi, Michael. Hi, Simon. Good to be here again. Uh, Great, great to have you. And we've also got Toby Bownas, who's a teacher at St Helens and Catherine's in Abingdon. Hi, Toby. Hi, Simon. Uh, Thanks for having me back on. Uh, Great to have both of you. Um, Okay, so we're going to talk about natural law and situation ethics today, as I've said. Um, Both appear in the OCR and Edexcel A-level specifications. They aren't on the AQA philosophy uh, specification or IB or Scottish hires. However, even if you aren't studying um, either of these topics directly, I think it's important to be aware of them as they provide some interesting contrasts two more standard topics that are across all the specifications, such as utilitarianism, deontology, and virtue ethics. Okay, so let's start with um, natural law theory. We'll get on to situation ethics uh, later on in the episode. Now, I mentioned St. Thomas Aquinas, but actually it's really important to start a little bit further back with with the background. So, Michael, do you want to start us off by thinking about Aristotle and teleology, please? Yeah, sure. Um, Aristotle, uh, in terms of uh, his way of explaining reality, broke things down into the four causes. So he said, for everything, there are uh, there is a material cause, the stuff that it's made of, the formal cause, like its shape, its structure, what makes it, gives it its essence, um, the efficient cause, what brings that object about, what causes that object to go from what it actually is to what it potentially could be. It could be the other way around. I always get actuality and potentiality confused. And then you've got the final cause, the telos. So... If you apply that to a man-made object, a chair could be made of wood. It's shaped and structured so that people can sit in it. It's made by a chair maker, and the final purpose is for someone to be able to sit in it for it to hold your weight. Um, so everything in nature also has a telos. So you broke it down to three souls. So you have the vegetative soul, things that are plant-based, take on nutrition, and basically survive through taking on nutrition, photosynthesis, those sorts of things. He wouldn't have been aware of that, but that's sort of taking on of uh, uh, nutrition. Then sentient or animal souls that are perceptive, but not necessarily rational. And then you've got human souls that are rational. So what Aristotle basically deduced from this is that uh, the purpose or telos of the human being is to be rational and uh, to use our reason. And things that perform their telos are good so human beings that reason and uh, employ that rational principle are morally good human beings so in the same way a chair that would take your weight is a good chair one that doesn't is not a good chair a human that reasons and finds out their purpose and fulfills their purpose is a good human being those humans that don't are not great yeah so when we're when we're talking about teleology and you might see that word a fair bit or as as michael says also telos we're thinking about the final bit the end the purpose the goal that's the kind of key thing uh, to take away from aristotle at least as regards natural law theory there's lots of other brilliant stuff in aristotle i'm a big aristotle fan but we're just going to stick with with teleology um there 
So thanks, Michael. So shall we kind of then think, so how does how does Aquinas get into the picture? What's Aquinas using in Aristotle? What's he starting to to develop? Does anyone, who wants to uh, explain that? And yeah, introduce? I can Toby. go for Aquinas. So, you know, he, he's taken quite a lot, really. Um, I mean, first of all, he's taking this idea of, of purpose of, of telos, and he's taking the idea that humans kind of realise that Telos through, in the same way that Aristotle did, through rationality and through reason. He does differ then from Aristotle in thinking that our our Telos is going to be realised in the next life. Um, you know, we're not going to realise our ultimate end um, on earth. That ultimate end is going to be union with God, um, because obviously, you know, he's a Christian. And he's also taken from Aristotle the importance of virtues, uh, so, you know, Aquinas thinks that certain virtues in particular are kind of primary to realising that telos and to applying with your rationality to, to get to that ultimate end, which is union with God. And then he kind of moves from that into, um, or we can move from that into kind of thinking about what the natural law is or what law is. Mm. Great, that's really helpful from from both of you. So just to make some connections for students. So there's a whole episode on Aristotle and virtue ethics uh, in Philosophy Get School if you want to check that out. So when we're talking about virtues, when, when, when Toby's you know rightly talking about them, so uh, there are some recognisable moral virtues that we, we would think of as moral virtues that occur in Aristotle's lists and thinking. But also he's thinking about excellences, I suppose, just excellent ways of being. Um, and that might be moral ways, but also there are some interesting ones mixed in as well. But often we, we think about um, being courageous or being witty uh, and other things like that. Um, and so, so sorry, I should have said this, but, you know, so Aristotle, there he is, Greek philosopher, St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great uh, Christian thinkers, big uh, medieval Christian thinker. And he's developing a lot from from Aristotle. Uh, and then, as Toby said, so we get these kind of basic ideas, and then we're going to develop this into what the natural law is. So, should we start thinking about then to put some meat on the bones of of natural law theory? Um, and it's been a while since I've been looking at, at Aquinas, so you guys might be able to help me out here. So, should we start with some kind of basic definitions? I think I don't know if this is going to be helpful about around eternal law, divine law, natural law. Should we think about? That is a kind of important three-way distinction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really important. If we start off with eternal law, because I guess yeah. you know, that's, that often comes as the top, you know, in some way it's useful to think about it as these being tiered, but I'll kind of go on and explain why they're not, you know, quite one, two, three, four in that way. But the eternal law certainly seems to come at the top. And the eternal law is really just the it's the reason of God. Um, and Aquinas says it, it moves all things to their due end so it's basically the the way the universe is according to god and it's reflected in god's creation but we can't directly know what it is um or we can't directly know what all of it is because we're human and god is god so at some point it's going to be you know inaccessible to us and so it's kind of the way the the way the universe is why is it this way and not another way well we can't ultimately know that's the eternal law we've then got the divine law and the divine law is kind of revealed law to us revealed from god to us 
in scripture. So the Bible, for example, and it's kind, you can kind of understand the divine law as affirmations of the natural law, the natural law and the divine law. They're not really going to contradict each other. And most of the natural law kind of, you can, you can see, you can find them in each. So for example, one of the 10 commandments is do not murder. You can find that out through the divine law. You can also find that out through the natural law. But then there's some parts of the divine law, which you can only find out through the divine law. You wouldn't be able to find out through the natural law. So one of the other 10 commandments, keep the Sabbath holy. You know, how do we know that? Well, it's revealed to us that in God's creation, you know, God created the world in six days, rest on the seventh day. That's revealed through scripture. So we know keep the Sabbath holy through the divine law. The natural law is to do with morality. And we can access this through our faculties of reason, um, also a bit of our natural inclination, and we use these to discern the natural law. Um, And Aquinas says that it is nothing else than the rational creature's participation in the the eternal law. So it's us participating in the eternal law, finding out what it is, using reason. We can see it's reflected in the divine law, Um, So the example I gave before, Ten Commandments, murder is wrong, do not murder. Um, We can work that out using reason and kind of natural inclination. We can also see it in the divine law, so they correspond. And then the human law is basically the natural law established in the laws of society. So, you know, the law of the society that you live in, because Aquinas does recognise, although he thinks that all people can or do have this the faculty of reason, Sometimes we're going to get stuff wrong. Um, so it's you know practically useful to have a, a, a law, a human law set up in society to say, don't do this or do this. And then there are going to be other things which, you know, we just need to kind of govern the way we live. Traffic laws, for example, you know, not going to be in uh, the natural law necessarily, you know, but super important for society to function. So those are... Yeah, the four the four types of law that Aquinas envisages. That's great. Really helpful. Thanks, Toby. Michael, do you want to come in and add anything to, to what we just heard? Yeah, so I listened to uh, or, or read a bit about um, Aquinas in preparation for this podcast, and he, do, he does get a bit of a kick in sometimes uh, for his natural law theory. He's uh, it, not, sometimes not treated with a huge amount of respect, but I think it's worth teasing out why he distinguished between divine and natural law as well, in that Obviously, the the divine law has been revealed by God, but those societies that don't have access to that revelation still seem to structure their laws around those basic principles of not murdering, not stealing. So he really was kind of quite, uh, well, uh, how would you word it? Progressive, I suppose, in thinking that these societies are still, all humans, whether they're Christian or not, are still able to reason their way to uh, correct moral thinking, whether they have access to the divine revelation or not. Um, so I think that's what he's worth giving a bit of credit uh, for for that. I think that's, that's all I would add, really. Great. OK, so uh, I'm just thinking about you as teachers in the classroom. So you, you set up this, uh, the distinction between the eternal law, divine law, natural law. And then what what do you what do, do students find that easy to grasp? And then how do you move the story on uh, in explaining uh, natural law theory? Yeah, I think you know students tend to be quite 
quick up on getting these kind of four levels. Um, I mean, the kind of point that I would like to stress is, um, you know, the, the way in which, you know, the d- divine and natural law complement each other. Um, you know, it's not necessarily that one's on top of the other. Um, they're kind of working in tandem together. And kind of once once I kind of, you know, happy with that point and then look at some examples, Ten Commandments and in the Bible, how that actually kind of comes about, they can kind of, the, 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 the pieces of the puzzle start to fit together. Okay, great. Okay, good. So um, how do you take the story on then? Um, do we talk about primary and secondary precepts? Michael, do you want to explain that for us? Yes. So um, a quick bit of a revision, a bit of a, is it a mnemonic? We really need primary precepts. So that's a good way of remembering them. We really need primary precepts. So what Aquinas does is he looks at our human nature and he deduces these five kind of precepts that all human societies and all humans kind of, he believes have this as their purpose. So W, worship of God, um, R for reproduction, N for nurture and education of the young, P for preservation of life, and the other P for living in a peaceful society. Um, so he would say that these, if you, you should arrive at these through reason, and once you've arrived at those through reason, uh, through reason, they are kind of almost infallible in that they are correct. You've reasoned correctly if you agree with these, because this is our human nature. If you look at across the board societies want to live peacefully we want to preserve life we have a, a, a sex drive we want to reproduce uh once we've reproduced we want to nurture and educate the young the only one that's slightly controversial among students is this idea that we have this desire this ultimate goal to worship and connect with god as toby was pointing out earlier this end goal that we are eventually working towards so then you would from those primary precepts you'd use reason then to work out the secondary precepts which could be fallible depending on how you've reasoned your way to those secondary precepts so for example preserve life you would generally say would be opposed to euthanasia that would be a a reasonable judgment from preserving life to an outcome and a secondary precept that euthanasia is wrong Mm -hmm. great uh toby anything to to add to that yeah i'll kind of add that he's got the the, the primary precepts and he thinks that these all come from kind of, I guess, like an overriding law. And the overriding law is our natural inclination to do good and to avoid evil. So he says, yeah, he, he, he says that good is to be done and pursued and evil to be, is to be avoided. All the other precepts of the law of nature are based on this. So, and that's and he he thinks that that kind of law of avoiding good uh, doing good rather and avoiding evil is an innate inclination right we kind of innately want to do this stuff um and from that position we can that we he then can move to the primary precepts of um as michael said you know the 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 five that um are there are so he kind of yeah starts with that as the inclination that we all have and then move to that yeah, only only other than that, um, the secondary precepts. Well, as Michael said, the primary precepts kind of you know fixed there as they are. The primary precepts we we kind of work them out using phrenesis, practical wisdom, and that's where kind of this idea of, of, of virtue start to kind of come in. Um, and these secondary precepts, you know, Aquinas I think often gets labelled as like you know it's an absolute theory, no matter what. And I think that's, you know, wrongly labelled like that because the secondary precepts do, he thinks, kind of 
vary, you know, depending on the time and the place. And you have to use your practical wisdom. You have to use your reasoning to go from the primary precept to the secondary precept. And then, you know, he ties in um, the, the, the role of conscience in this as well. And then practical wisdom that lead us to like a practical judgment about what to do in the situation. So those primary precepts definitely fixed. Secondary precepts, there's a little bit more flexibility than is often given to Aquinas. Great. That's really helpful. Michael, you wanted to come in? Yeah, yeah. I just think for the OCR spec, it is worth for students, once you've done conscience, often that's in A2, to go back to natural law once you've looked at Aquinas' conscience. Because you kind of get two two impressions of Aquinas. So this one where it's very much fixed, you do these five primary precepts, you get to the secondary precepts, and that's kind of it, which it, it can be interpreted like that in the Catholic tradition. But if you look at it through his, his ideas of conscience, actually places a huge value on your own human reasoning. Once you've used your reason to get to a particular outcome, you are bound by that because your reason, you have to trust in your reason and you have to take that on yourself. Even if it turns out that you're wrong, he defines things like vincible and invincible ignorance. So, you know, if you've done everything to use your reason, uh, you should stick to that. And it places a huge kind of burden on you to kind of make sure you've used your reason correctly. But it is very much like you have to reason your, you don't just listen to the to the uh, primary precepts and it's not like an easy thing to do these are difficult decisions that you have to make based on these principles i always laugh at the example he uses i think (laughs) for vincible and invincible ignorance is it the one where if someone sleeps with another man's wife but he did everything he could to make sure he he thought it was his wife and he for whatever reason couldn't work it out i don't know why he couldn't just ask her name or just double check but this example he uses it's always fun but you know he's not at fault for that because he's done everything he can to get rid of any potential mistakes and he's used his reason correctly he just made a mistake that he wasn't culpable for so i think it's not as simple as sometimes we 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 can get into the habit of teaching this is just a straightforward you do this you work out that it's very much about using your reason great good and in fact that's going to be uh, it's two thoughts that occur to me there from what you just said michael we'll come on to kind of using your reason in situations later on in the episode when we think about situation ethics but obviously under a different guise but also your thoughts um your, your general thought just talking about the ocr spec but it applies more generally that um i imagine that this is what it's like sometimes with, with when you're teaching because you're under so much pressure to pack in so much material but it's really important for students just to go back and revise and rethink what they've learned in the light of other stuff that they've been they've been hearing about um rather than thinking all of these things as isolated nuggets of information that they're just they're just um grabbing hold of okay well let's um let's leave things there that was really helpful to hear about uh, natural law theory and we'll see you in the next part when we think about some further issues and some problems for it And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, this is just to give you my uh, normal reminder to check out my personal website, which you can find if you just type in my name, Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N. If you get to my website and click on the tabs, uh, the one at the top that says Pod Schools, then you'll find uh, not just a link to all of the recordings and all the episodes, um, but a link also to the timetable which I try to keep up to date so you can see what episodes I've recorded, but also what episodes are coming up. 
Um, if you want to email me with any questions, then please do so. My email address is on the on the website, um, and we can try to introduce some of your questions and queries into future recordings. If you see something and that's already been recorded, but you've still got some questions about it, still write in because I'll get some of our teachers back for a few Q and A sessions. So Michael and Toby can answer all your questions about Thomas Aquinas and everything else if they want to. Okay, so we've introduced natural law uh, theory or natural law ethics. So now we need to think about some issues uh, about it. Um, And there's three, I think, that it makes sense for us to talk about. Um, So we'll come on to two of the topics in a while, something called the doctrine of double effect and whether natural law ethics is actually a good way of making moral decisions. But let's start with uh, with this question. Do you think it makes sense to think in modern terms that the world, or indeed anything, has a telos or a, or a purpose? Because that's obviously the foundation of natural law ethics, as we saw. Um, so does it, does it make sense? Does it appeal to the modern mind? How do, you, how do you deal with that in the classroom, either of you? I think instinctively when you when you don't give it a huge amount of thought you can kind of get it to work particularly when you apply to kind of human-made objects so you know this desk that i'm sat at now i can go and ask the desk maker why did you make this desk and you go well to put stuff on to do some work on it clearly has a purpose right if i try to use it as a door it's not going to do very well it clearly has a purpose that it's designed to do um the problem is when you apply it to the natural world and it's still kind of a, an appealing idea because um i use examples of animals and if you if you go to a zoo and you see three cheetah running around and one limping around you would go that one limping is not fulfilling its purpose it's not doing what we would expect a cheetah to do so you would call a vet because it should be able to run like the other cheetah it is it is quite a powerful idea but i suppose the problem is when you think well who has decided who that what the purpose of a cheetah is and if this de- even this desk if i decided right, i want to use it to reach a book off a shelf and i climb on the desk it makes a perfectly good ladder who's to say that purpose isn't just as good as using it to work on um and again going to the natural world you know is the purpose of a tree to photosynthesize reproduce produce fruit or to cut down and make a desk or to burn for fuel so when you get to the natural world, it becomes much more difficult to kind of justify it because you'd have to have a proposer of that purpose. You'd have to have some ultimate purpose. So I suppose natural law theory is useful if you can, or telos, I suppose, is useful if you are convinced by arguments for the existence of God, for example, something to give it the purpose. If you're not convinced by those, that's a real problem in, in finding any secular value in this, in telos in general, in my view. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would echo that. Um, as Michael said, kind of the idea of purpose or things having a purpose entails something that has given it that purpose. And even when you kind of going back to the idea of animals, you look at, um, you know, a, a bird and it's got a particularly particular shaped beak, perfect for kind of cracking open nuts or something. And you might be tempted to say, oh, that's it. The, the purpose of the beak is to crack nuts open. But again, that idea of purpose you know entails someone who's given that purpose but as we know evolution works through natural selection and it's based on random genetic mutations some of which or the the kind of the useful ones for that species survive and then the mutations which are not useful die out and so we've got this kind of random natural process where natural selection selects what lives and what dies and this 
for a lot of people removes this idea of a grand overarching purpose for things um, or even a, an individual purpose for the beak of the birds because it was it just evolved that way through natural selection you know there's nothing that kind of has given it its purpose and then it kind of you can take that even further when we get to humans right we seemingly are able to rationalize and question what our own purpose is and then you know thinking about existentialist philosophers Jean-Paul Sartre you know we're able to give ourselves a purpose which again removes that need for this kind of uh, you know like a theological purpose that ends in God and so we kind of you know we create our own purpose in the 21st century yeah it's uh thanks Toby that's really helpful in fact as you were speaking uh, perhaps just some reflections on me to, to help the students. I think there's some really deep waters going on here, right? Because remember, we've got, uh, you know, Aristotle, you know, uh, Greek philosopher, um, St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, great medieval philosopher. And then, you know, the as you mentioned, Toby, we've got, you know, natural selection. So we've got the rise of modern science that kind of can explain why things are as they are which in different ways, not just in the biological context, but in other scientific contexts, removes the need for us to propose that there is a, a purpose and indeed a purpose giver because the beak of the bird, it just evolves through natural selection. It's not as if it's been made to be that way by by God or, or, or by, by anyone else. And so that's why it's a really interesting question to say, does it make sense to the modern mind to talk in terms of purposes and, and goals, certainly ultimate purposes and ultimate goals? And if, and if we can't make sense of that, then the question is, does natural law theory make sense to the modern mind does it have does it have purchase michael why don't you come back in yeah it was something i've read recently actually and um this idea of telos i think we spoke about it on a a utilitarian utilitarianism podcast when we talked about mill's higher pleasures and it usually turns out that the higher pleasures are what philosophers like and it's the same kind of with with purpose our purpose is to philosophize and to reason and to use our rationality um and it's got an interesting an interestingly dark history in some respects, because I was reading uh, Rosemary Radford uh, Ruther's Sexism and God Talk, and she talked about how because reason was considered to be what made you human, it was then far easier to say that women who weren't didn't have access to education were lesser humans because they apparently couldn't reason. Or when we colonial, uh, when the people went out and uh, colonised different parts of the world, because they weren't thinking in a Greek way or a Latin way. They were deemed as less rational and therefore less human. So it's, it's, I think it's important also to interrogate who's defining this purpose and the negative impacts that can have as well. Because I think, didn't Aristotle describe women as misbegotten men? And that was then brought through to Aquinas as well. So that's another interesting piece of history of Talos that I only really fully appreciated since reading Ruther's work. Yeah. Yeah, good, uh, good thoughts there. Okay, so let's let's leave that there because I think there's, I mean, there's a we could go on endlessly thinking about, you know, can we re-enter the medieval mind? Um, uh, let's let's move on though because there is in uh, modern day thinking um, a very very important doctrine or principle, and that's the doctrinal principle of double effect, which comes out of Aquinas's thinking, and perhaps we should just. 
uh, pause there, think about it, and, and then think about what application it might have and, and how it's controversial. So someone want to explain the doctrine of double effect for us? Uh, yeah, I can go for it. So this is about when an action can have two effects, double effect, and it, it can be permissible for an action to have a negative effect if it meets kind of certain conditions, um, or at least, yeah, well, according to doctrine of double effect. So first of all, the action must be good that you're taking, or at least morally neutral. The bad result of the action should not be the means by which the good result is achieved. So you can't get to the good end get by means of the bad result. Um, the intention must only be for the good effect um, of an action to be the final result. So the good effect has to be the intention. So you can foresee that the bad effect might happen or will happen, but it can't be the intended kind of consequence. So you can't go out and think good, good outcome, bad outcome, I want the bad outcome. And the good effect must be proportional um, in importance to the to the bad um, effect of the outcome of the action. So you kind of got these conditions for the doctrine of double effect. Uh, so it has to be good, can't be the, the bad effect, can't be the means by which you get to the good result, uh, and the intention has to be good. You can foresee the bad happening, but it has to be good intention. Great, thanks, Toby. Uh, Michael, any thoughts from you? Uh, examples? Um, yeah, I think a, a, an example could be if we take uh, euthanasia as an example. Um, if someone has, uh, say, cancer that is inflicting a huge amount of pain um, mm-hmm. in their lives, you could give a high dose of morphine with the intention of reducing their pain, but knowing that the unintended side effect is for their life to have been shortened in that uh, in that case. However, if someone has, say, a severe disability, say locked-in syndrome, there is no justification for giving any morphine. There's no positive effect that would be brought about by giving them that. So giving them morphine with the intention of killing them would be wrong in that case, whereas with a terminal cancer, you could give a high dose of morphine because you've got that intention of reducing pain, but it's going to have the side effect of shortening their life. So, yeah, that's probably the best example I could think of. Nice example. So, I mean, I, I can feel as if I, I could jump in straight away, but let me come in with a question first. So are there any problems with the doctrine of double effect? Because it's very controversial, isn't it? Uh, well, I suppose if you if you look at that, uh, that example I've just used, you know, is there any discernible difference between those two, two cases? You know, the outcome is the same. Uh, both are in different types of pain. Um, and it's kind of admitting that, you know, in one case, pain can be relieved, in the other case, you know, mental trauma cannot be relieved. It's kind of wordplay in some respects, I think. You know, it's kind of like, I, I want to give myself permission to do this. So I'm going to try and find a way <laughs> to make it permissible. It feels a bit like that. It feels kind of a cheat code for natural law in some ways, because you kind of know what you're doing is right, but you've got to kind of find a way of justifying it. That's personally, that's how it feels to me. Yeah, so that phrase of wordplay is mentioned a lot with doctrine of, of double effect. So just to go through that example, so you say that, yeah, my, my intention is to relieve the pain of the the person who's in a great deal of pain, and I have to give them this dose, even though I know that it will kill them. 
but really what I'm doing is is aiming to end their life. And so I'm messing around with my intentions. I'm trying to justify it with certain words. There's all sorts, I mean, just, just by explaining it there, there's all sorts of things we can pull apart. I mean, how much you know, it's what you really know is that it's it's highly likely that it will kill them. And some people try and justify it in in those terms, say, well, I didn't really know 100% it was going to happen. It was only highly likely, but you know, it is, it is going to be highly, highly likely. Okay. So let's leave doctrine double effect there. It's really controversial. It's well worth pursuing students um, a little bit more. And, you know, there are some philosophers at universities who've made whole careers out of thinking about the doctrine of double effect, both from a religious point of view, but also from a non-religious point of view and thinking about those big issues around intention and, and consequence. Um, let's move on to the third uh, issue that's certainly mentioned in the specifications um, about natural law theory. And it's kind of, it's a basic question that we should ask about any moral theory or moral stance. Is it a good way of making moral decisions? Does it, is it helpful? What do the two of you think about that? I mean, firstly, you know, it, it's going to be help, more helpful helpful only maybe for the Christian, uh, someone who is a Christian, um, because if you're not, you're probably going to reject it, you know, fairly outright based on what Aquinas has to say. So if we kind of think about, you know, is it helpful for the Christian? If we kind of assume that someone is a Christian, is it helpful then? Well, I mean, it, it, it seems to kind of offer a pretty clear framework about what is right and what is wrong um, and what you ought to do in those situations. And but with with the kind of application of the rules based on reasoning to those to you know depending on the situation slightly, so it gives you kind of legalistic rules. But then there's uh, you know using your reason to work out what's actually practical to do in that situation. You know that seems to be like a pretty pretty decent way of of going about. Um, so in that sense, um, someone who is Christian and they're kind of you know happy with the whole God part of it might be quite happy um, with that. Great, thanks, Toby. Uh, Michael, yeah, just to echo what Toby said, I think I think if if you accept the prior probability that there may well be a god, uh, you accept the cosmological, ontological, teleological argument, and then arguments for, in particular, the Christian God. Um, I think actually, as a Christian ethic goes, I think it's it can be good. It has been misused. I think uh, you know, I think the strict interpretation. I think coming from church doctrine to you must not use contraception you must not do this takes out that bit that Aquinas stressed about using our own reason uh, to work that out um, I think it can be a really good Christian ethic but yeah it is kind of uh, significantly undermined if you don't accept the idea of a, a purpose um, and I suppose even if you could work your way and I'm not sure how you would do it but even you could work your way as a, Aristotle kind of did with a non-religious idea of telos Again, who gets to set the telos? Um, are we certain of that telos? Is there only one telos? And then also you end up committing the naturalistic fallacy as well. So even if you could say human nature is a certain way, it doesn't necessarily mean we ought to behave in that way. There may be very good reasons for contradicting our nature. You know, if you take the primary precepts even, there is good reason not to always reproduce. <laughs> There's a good reason sometimes to not preserve life. Uh, there's good reason that sometimes you might want to bring change rather than live in a peaceful society you know there might be reasons why you disrupt society in order to achieve a greater goal um etc etc so i think even if you could work your way to the idea of purpose without god it's still difficult to then justify that and yeah it commits that naturalistic fallacy 
Great, thanks, Mark. Yeah, just a few thoughts from me. So first, we just mentioned naturalistic fallacy. So again, if uh, students aren't aware of that, then we've got some uh, Philosophy Gets School episodes on metaethics, the naturalistic fallacy and moral naturalism and all sorts of other positions and ideas are mentioned in, in those. Um, yeah, and that, that idea of uh, kind of a non-religious teleology, again, it's an important uh, reminder, Michael, set of questions about who's, how do we discern the purpose? Is there just one purpose? Who's kind of deciding or influencing what our discernment of that purpose is? Very, very important questions. And of course, I mean, there are some modern religious thinkers influenced by Aquinas who developed different ideas of what uh, the teleology should be, what the content is, what the what the precepts should be. So I'm thinking in particular of uh, John Finnis, who's developed uh, natural law theory in relation to kind of law, and he's got a different sort of list, but obviously draws a lot of inspiration from from uh, Aquinas. And he thinks it's a good enough guide, but then you no, know, he's very much very much a, an ardent Catholic thinker. Okay, listen, that was really helpful. Um, Let's leave things there. And then we're going to come back in the next part to think about a different theory or, or stance, namely situation ethics. And welcome back. So having thought about natural law ethics, let's move on to uh, that different theory or stance, namely situation ethics. So Toby, do you want to start us off here by explaining what situation ethics is, its background and and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll start off just kind of giving a bit of background about Joseph Fletcher, who's the main um, kind of the main guy, um, the main thinker here. So kind of putting him in Historical context, born in 1905, he's an American philosopher, he he taught at Harvard, and this is kind of, probably may well pop up later on, um, but interesting facts about him, he was president of the Euthanasia Society of America, um, so he's, he's got really heavily involved in bioethics, and he writes this book in 1966 called Situation Ethics and the New Morality, and he kind of, that's where he sets out this Christian uh, based situation ethics. It's not that long, it's 200 pages. Um, so it's quite a quick read and kind of think about the the, the context, um, the historical context in which he's writing kind of helps us understand maybe why he's doing what he's doing. Um, so 1960s America, huge amount going on, um, lots of kind of cultural norms being overturned, sexual revolution, Vietnam War, civil rights movement. So all these kind of norms in society about gender roles about sex about you know issues about race um and kind of statehood all being questioned all being kind of overturned and the the narrative is being shifted and situation ethics can i guess be looked at in that kind of way where he's you know perhaps flipping christian ethics over you know especially what we've just discussed to do with aquinas so Fletcher kind of sees Christian ethics as too focused on laws and rules and, you know, do this, don't do this, um, and absolutes. And he calls the, this kind of like legalism. So legalism, ethics, um, morality should be based on laws and commands and you should just follow them. And he contrasts legalism with 
antinomianism. I've said that wrong, but it's a mouthful. Um, and that's the view that there are no moral laws. Um, people should kind of just act spontaneously for what they think is kind of the right thing to do. And he puts situation ethics in the middle of these two. The view that what is right is based on the situation. And there are kind of, as we'll discuss, important things to consider. But based on the situation you're in, you should you know, make your moral decision. Um, and ultimately, it can be boiled down to what is the most loving thing to do. Um, and he gets this concept of love um, from the Bible, from the example of Jesus. So the example of or the, the love that he's talking about is agape, agapeic love. And this is the kind of self-sacrificial love that Jesus shows to you know, mankind in being crucified, the love that God has for all of humanity in Christianity. So it's different from the love that you might have to your family members or the love to your friends, the love that you have to your um, you know, romantic partner. Different from that kind of love. It's the, this Christian self-sacrificial love. And that's at the heart of situation ethics. Great. That was really helpful, uh, Toby. Uh, Michael, do you want anything, anything to add or, or take the story on one notch? Yeah, it's, um, I suppose you could also look, he, he, he believed he, he developed a, a thoroughly Christian ethic uh, based on the person of Jesus. So I think he gives a couple of examples of, of Jesus' actions. Um, so Jesus is often presented as being in conflict with the strict religious legal codes of his time. So, for example, healing on the Sabbath. Um, and the phrase that he comes up with is uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So it's the spirit of the law, the idea that you rest on the Sabbath. You don't become overburdened with avoiding every possible thing that can constitute work. The whole point is you rest on the Sabbath. You look at the spirit of that rule. Um, and the same with things like um, uh, dietary regulations as well. So he, Jesus said it's what comes out of a person that defiles them, not what comes goes into a person so it's very much about the intention your um the reason why you're doing what you're doing um how you're responding to that situation you can make many criticisms of that portrayal of jesus and the jewish uh, groups of the time and i won't go into the various anti-semitic anti-semitic tropes that uh, some of those gospel writers used or how it's been interpreted by christians over time it's worth looking into if you're interested in that but that's the general gist of uh, how he based it on the person of Jesus and how Jesus approached laws and regulations in the Bible. Great. Okay, so the, so the bare bones of it. Uh, I mean, actually, we, you know, you both filled it in very well. But basically, you know, we 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 come across a situation. There's some sort of dilemma or problem or something that we notice, and indeed, that's going to be part of the agapeic conception, right? Us noticing and being aware that there's a problem rather than just being indifferent. And then the guidance is that we we think about what the you know what would Jesus do I suppose is the modern version of it right and we we think about you know agape and then we act um, and that's the that's the bare bones of what what Fletcher uh, says um, so I suppose there's a big question for me um, is that enough in a in a moral theory? Is that going to help us? Because there's all sorts of questions that I imagine come to my mind and might come to 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 your mind and, and your indeed your students' mind, which is what happens if there are two people, they're both kind of loving people, they both read their New Testament and, and so on and thought about it deeply, and they do different things in that 
same situation or how do you think about consistency from one situation to the next and so i mean how, what, what are we going to say about um, about those questions and others right so is it is it a useful theory i think i would start with uh, the way fletcher uh, thought about conscience and i suppose in a way thinking about it i've not, I've not made this connection before but there are some similarities on this score between aquinas and fletcher in that uh, Fletcher des- describes conscience as a verb, something you do, something that you you have to work through and really think about and and use your your reason to to work through that. So I don't know if it's meant to provide you with a set of rules and obligations that you have to follow, but it's about how you work through each situation and you you really engage with the situation. You consider what love is and you you yeah you respond and and I suppose if if two people respond in different ways I, I don't know whether that's a fault of the theory especially it's just they have to engage in that dialogue and thought about the situation and how the situation speaks to them mm. um I guess thanks Michael Toby yeah the question is is it a good is it you know useful ethical theory um I think I'm going to go and, and defend situation ethics okay good um because I think it's the agapeic thing to do, Toby. Yeah, exactly. Um, showing some love to Joseph Fletcher. I think when I kind of cover this with or with students, kind of you know talk about the idea of love and look at examples in the Bible. Then he has these kind of prop, six propositions which he kind of outlines, and, and these are meant to um, kind of reinforce the idea of agapeic love. So that love is the only intrinsic good, and nothing else is intrinsically good. Um, or that uh, love, you know, decisions should be made um, situationally, not prescriptively. Nothing else justifies the means other than love. And you kind of have these six propositions and then students go, well, like, is that it? How do we know what we actually do? You know, you're not actually being told what to do. And I'm going to present that as a bit of a strength because it does allow that situational, that flexibility in what you're doing. And one of another one of its strength he he talks about his four working principles um four things to kind of keep in mind when you're making moral decisions and one of them is pragmatism and the the things that you do should actually be achievable they should actually they should be pragmatic you should actually be able to would performing them reasonably be considered as you know a loving thing to do and then you know one of the other four propositions uh, presuppositions personalism uh, you know, put people first, as Michael said. You know about the 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 you know Jesus teaching about the law and the and the Sabbath being made for the person. Putting people first, centered around this kind of ethical theory. So you know, I think based on that, it's going to you know do the love, most loving thing. That seems to be quite you know, quite nice. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So so as you were talking, Toby, let let me make a connection because I said at the start both natural law theory and situation ethics on OCR and LXL, but not elsewhere. And if you're an, an AQA philosophy student or IB or hires and you've listened this far, then then think about this for comparison. So often virtue ethics or virtue theory used to get a kicking because people say, oh, well, how good a guide is that? Because it's just saying, you know, do the courageous thing or do the wise thing or whatever it might be. It's not like utilitarianism, for example, which gives you loads of guidance. And actually, there's there's been a debate over the last few years saying, well, actually, think about utilitarianism. You can have lots of different, quite specific versions of utilitarianism, but it basically boils down to the thought of do the thing that brings about the best consequences, right? 
And that can be both as general or specific you want to make it, but the specific things are going to kind of, those are things that will be different in different theories and they can also be challenged. But basically utilitarianism is just saying, do the thing that's going to bring bring about the best consequences. And that is both um, something very general and it could be challenged as it could provide enough guidance, but also it might be a strength because it gives you enough flexibility and, and variability. I'm just saying that to echo what you were just saying, Toby, about situation ethics. So really we've got this, I mean, principle, although Fletcher wouldn't quite call it that, I think, but basically do the loving thing. And that's, you know, you can break it down into a few more detailed, slightly more detailed principles and give some examples, but that might be enough um, so long as people have been raised in in good and loving ways. Um, Michael, what do you think about that? Yeah, I just think drawing, building on what you've just said, I think, and, and looking back at natural law, and if you look at the the purposes, uh, the precepts that Aquinas outlines, and you ask, well, what 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 are the purposes of those precepts? And you'd probably say, well, to preserve life because that's a loving thing to do. <laughs> like you want you want to do that uh, to nurture and educate your young is a, a perfectly you know a, a loving thing to do. And I think it's it's not as it's not as uh, different as maybe we first think. Other you know, obviously, it's not as as legalistically interpreted but yeah like it's looking at that spirit why do we do those things and ultimately it's because we we want to live in a peaceful society because it benefits everybody it's the loving thing to do um and that kind of links to the precept you know love is just justice or justice is love distributed you know and yeah you would you would still probably get to similar conclusions that Aquinas got to but you'd have a bit more flexibility to to act in different ways if if that principle, like with euthanasia, if the principle of preservation of life is not necessarily loving, you can jettison it. So yeah, it, it's often portrayed as this free for all. But I think there's enough in the six propositions and the four uh, working principles. There's enough there to, to for it to be a rigorous thought process about mm-hmm. what is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So oh yeah, go on, Toby. Kind of building on those points, and then thinking about you know perhaps someone who is a Christian. You know, would they find this appealing? And they they may very well quite like it because at the heart of it, it goes back to Jesus, um, who you know, for many, you know, most Christians is you know the, the heart of Christianity. Um, and you know, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? How does Jesus act? And you know, a lot of you know, you might be a Christian and kind of read through you know the some of theological from Thomas Aquinas and find that quite. Um, removed from what you might read in the Bible as, you know, what the actual things that Jesus is doing and saying and learning from his actions. But, you know, for me, if you're looking at it from, you know, the per- perspective of someone who was a Christian, this kind of goes back to the heart of it um, and kind of thinks, okay, what is actually Jesus saying? As you said before, what would Jesus do? Yeah. So um, when you're teaching it then, do, do your students kind of latch onto it? Do, do, in the end, do they like this kind of position? Not really. Not, no? <laughs> I find it quite, I think, I think ultimately they find it a bit, a bit, their, their, their choice of language is wishy-washy. Okay. Um, yeah. It's a they, bit want to know, they want some laws. They want to know exactly. what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit, it's a bit too flaky. Uh, it's a bit too, anything goes. Um, not quite going to tell you what to do figure it out and yeah they don't really like that yeah i usually teach it as my last ethical theory so i've usually done Kant's utilitarianism business ethics then natural law so we spent quite a lot of time and then situation ethics is about a lesson and a half 
I were kind of like, they get to the end of like, is that it? And I go, well, kind of, yeah, that is kind of it. And they are uh, somewhat disappointed. But I think because we pair it up with natural law, they do kind of prefer it to natural law. Uh, but yeah, it is kind of like, well, um, yeah, what is love? Who get? I don't. Yeah, how do you use this actually? So yeah, it can be a bit mm. underwhelming for our students. I, mean, I suppose that I mean reflections from me because I, I mean, I haven't thought you know seriously about situation ethics for quite a while since I was a, an A level student back you know uh, when people were taking notes on tablets, but the tablets were made of stone, not uh, on iPads. And uh, I suppose a lot of it is actually built into the concept of agape. Right, because you just say you yeah, do the loving thing, and you think, well, that's. But I mean, as Toby introduced it quite rightly, it's about it's it, it's a specific sort of love, which has a huge tradition uh, around it, and you know you can spend a lot of time thinking about agapeic love and distinguishing it from other sorts of love, and and looking at examples, uh, not just Jesus, but but the case of well, and thinking a lot about Christian theology, and that's where a lot of the thought comes in. And that's where a lot of the guidance comes in. And once you've got all of that in your head, then when they say do the agapeic loving thing, then, you, then you've got a bit more guidance, I, I think. Um, and the second thing that comes to mind is this. It's probably, I mean, I, I was saying this to the two of you before we started recording. And this is particularly for, for students who are, who are doing philosophy or religious studies and then think they might, might want to take it on uh, a bit further and, and study this at university. What's interesting is certainly in philosophy degrees, and I think to some extent religious studies degrees as well, situation ethics doesn't get much of a, a look in. Uh, it's not not taught very much at all, uh, which I think is is, is a bit of a shame. Um, but there is something very interesting. So there are quite a few uh, philosophical stances in normative ethics at university level where we talk about obviously utilitarianism and do it in more detail and Kantian deontology and virtue ethics uh, we often look at those very much and, and occasionally natural law theory but there's also some some other uh, more modern writers who think a lot about the situation and don't want to have these big laws but they say actually things you might have a range of different principles and they have different weights at different times and there's a lot more to say there. And actually, the spirit of what situation is, ethics is getting at kind of finds its way in, in, in those sort of theories. So, so if you do study philosophy at uh, university level, you, students, you might come across this with uh, W.D. Ross's uh, theory of prima facie duties, though often people refer to them as pro tanto duties nowadays, or a particular theory called particularist ethics, uh, which has been, uh, it's still a minority view, but it's been quite a hot topic in the last last 20 years, um, where you're just looking at each particular situation just in the way that Joseph Fletcher was doing. Um, so it's just interesting for me that even if situation ethics isn't studied under that heading, some of the ideas, but with a, with a non-Christian bent, um, are still, still around and, and being discussed. Um, uh, that wasn't a question that I was ending on, it was just... Statement. Um, so, any more thoughts about situation ethics, uh, gents? Michael. Yeah, just just one more because I, I do find this when students write essays, it's very easy to go. You just have to do the most loving thing, and you you say that for four paragraphs, and then you write a conclusion. Uh, so, for students listening, please, please, please engage with those six propositions. Work through those six propositions. Work through the four working principles. It is not utilitarianism with love just subbed in. There are There is depth there. So if you're writing essays on this, for my sanity and for all teachers' sanity, please add some, some of that depth. Work through those 
for uh, those uh, six propositions because I think there is a lot more to it than just do the most loving thing. You really have to get into the into that depth. I don't know if you agree with that, Toby. I don't know how many essays you've marked like that. <laughs> no, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, and I just add on to that. You know, Aquinas Fletcher, wrong person. Fletcher does actually. Um, you know, he gives some examples himself. You know, in his book. You know, the example of uh, sacrificial adultery, the uh, what he calls it, Christian cloak and dagger. So he, he gives these examples where he's kind of saying these, you know, um, illustrate what is the most loving thing to do. Um, you know, so sacrifice adultery. He's saying that the the adultery in that example is the most loving thing to do. And then, yeah, you take it back to those, um, you know, the six six propositions. Why is it the most loving thing to do? So, yeah, as well as using those and going to depth, kind of bring in those examples that he goes through in his book to illustrate what he thinks is the most loving thing to do and then how that and that that does kind of show it in sharp contrast with Aquinas um, just a quick question on that does he get does he conclude uh, on those four examples he, he doesn't I can't remember whether he concludes or whether that's something for people to think through because he, he, yeah that's my my take on it has been well he doesn't conclude um my take on it has been that he's kind of I don't know implicitly you know endorsing them yeah, fair um, enough. He's not saying, you know, at the at the end of like the sacrificial adultery, he doesn't say that the woman was right to have the you know affair. But my read is that that is the most loving yeah. thing to do in that situation. Yeah, I think I think it's it's interesting that he does keep it open ended though as well to say, you know, this is this is what you're this is what you're faced with in this situation, and I, I kind of know what I think, but really, what do you think about this situation? You know what Fletcher obviously would conclude, but you can still through that and still go through the process that he's going with because he hasn't kind of concluded for you I guess that's something for students also to to consider as well yeah so I suppose uh, having thought we might conclude can I ask a few more questions then about that so so actually it might be worth us just going through that example in you know, just a, putting the meat on the bones and then and then thinking okay so what happens if people do work that through and they've got different decisions i mean different outcomes right so they think either you know the woman was right or the woman was wrong so how how does that fit into the situation so do you want to just just put a bit of flesh on the bones then of that example um uh, perhaps toby if you've read it recently yeah. yeah yeah um so i think it's it's i think it's during the second world war um a german woman is um who who has three children is taken um captive um in a prisoner of war camp and she's she learns that her family are trying to kind of um find her find where she is her family her, her children and her husband and according to the rules of this prisoner of war camp she can only be released if she's pregnant um so she petitions one of the guards to sleep with her so she can get pregnant and she does and she's sent back to her family and her family welcome her even, you know, they, she tells them how she did it and they kind of welcome her with open arms because they have their mother back and they have, their, uh, you know, her husband has his wife back and they they love this child um, that she gives birth to because of because of what the child has kind of allowed their family, you know, it's allowed, the child has allowed their family to be re- reunited. So they're kind of, they're all very you know, happy, right, um, that, that, that she's back. So I guess it's got that kind of double layer of, the most loving thing to do, presumably here, to to have the affair, to sleep with the camp guards, and then the most loving thing to do is 
accept that child into the family. So I'm just thinking through that example. So what happens if, I mean, I don't know if what, what students might, how, how they might respond, but imagine if I was a kind of, you know, student trying to make trouble for you in your class, Toby, and I'd say, well, what happens if the fam, you know, one member of the family, you know, perhaps the husband, right, let's say, or perhaps the the, the kind of the grandparents, the parents of, of this of this woman who comes back, perhaps they're just they try to accept her back in, but they just can't, right? Because she's done this terrible thing, and then they've got this reminder, right? This this new child in the in the family, and then I mean, our response to to them might be one of understanding, but would it be one of criticism? Or I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which that type of situation can go. And whilst we might try and do a loving thing, actually some other loving things might be express itself as kind of anger or distress or or depression at it. So I'm just wondering how, how students respond to the, the example, really. And it just goes back to my earlier thought of do the loving thing, the agapaic thing, but actually what happens if people have different responses, often from, from a feelings of love and being, perhaps in the case of the husband, being let down, right? How, how do we deal with that? I think I think what I tend to focus on is is this idea of what is agape ultimately because you uh-huh. you have to look at what kind of love is that husband expressing yeah. is that husband expressing jealousy yeah. is that husband uh, uh, expressing kind of uh, possessive sort of love and that sort of yeah. thing you have to go back to the the, the propositions where it's you, you will the neighbors good whether you like them or not and I think it's that kind of unselfish love rather than the one of possession or self-interest even if it's kind of I, I understand that that person's self-interest but it is still self-interest it's not that kind of detached unselfish love for your wife and the situation she was in so I guess it's going back and discussing really what do we mean by agape and making sure they're distinct one like eros or erotic love or um the other types of love that have completely left my mind but you know the, the <laughs> The family love, the brother sister love, the relationship love, all those sorts of different types of love, and making sure we're clear on what we mean by agape is really important in cases like that, I think. Yeah, and now my mind's running. So imagine that it just so happens that the husband does have have these kind of, you know, more negative feelings. And then you're you're, you know, the friendly neighbour. And the question is, you know, you might sympathize with the husband, but at some point do you kind of shake him and say, come on. You know, you've got your wife out of prison and, and do you actually try and criticise them and try and show them a bit of tough love, I suppose? Or, or, I mean, how sympathetic you are to them. That's a kind of interesting take on it. I mean, I, I think that they're in a really, that imagined neighbour is in a really interesting position there about how they then react to the, the husband's reaction. Um, but I presume Joseph Fletcher doesn't talk about that person. But I suppose what's interesting to me then, and again, talking to the students is thinking in rather than writing your very dull essay, which has four paragraphs on kind of it's all about love, thinking through these sorts of examples in more detail and thinking about different people who might enter into these examples is to kind of enter into the spirit of what Joseph Fletcher was trying to do, which is to think through and imagine what it's like to be in that situation and try to do the most agapaic thing. And sometimes it might be very hard to discern what the most agapaic thing is. Um, I think examiners want you want to see you engaging with these theories. So using examples and working through them is the most powerful way to show an examiner that you understand the nuances, 
you understand the content, you're engaging with the material, you're confident in handling it. Those are all things examiners look for. So working through examples in ethics essays, particularly with natural law and situation ethics, that's a good rule of thumb for any any A-level essay, I think. Great. Uh, good advice. So shall we leave it uh, there then, uh, both of you? Um, thanks very much for coming on and giving us your thoughts and giving up your time. So thank you to you, Michael. No, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And to you, Toby, as well. Thank you for having me. Uh, and thanks to you for listening. Hope you found it useful and interesting. Uh, and all being well, we will be talking to you again in another episode of Philosophy Gets Schooled. Mm-hmm.